You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family. It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. We're talking today with Dr. Stephen Grant, and he is a medical director of sleep medicine. And we've just passed that time of year where once again, we spring forward and lose an hour of sleep. And uh, this time of year seems to uh, be debated of, is it a good thing? Uh, Does it affect the body? You lose an hour of sleep. What does losing sleep mean? What could it do to your overall health? And so those are the, some of the things we'd like to discuss uh, today with Dr. Grant. So Dr. Grant, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. For the person who says, well, what's, you know, what's the big deal about giving up uh, an hour of sleep? Um, is that, uh, does it have an impact losing just an hour or is just an hour an understatement? Well, I think it's it's more impactful based on, I don't think anybody really gets enough sleep. And there are times in my own life, I'll raise my hand and, and you know, confess to that. So the signal to noise ratio becomes widened when you're starting with a baseline of somewhat insufficient sleep. So it just sounds like an hour, but if you're only getting five or six hours a night and you take that hour away, uh, you can see some real consequences uh, from that. And there are some um, interesting epidemiologic data that we know happens uh, in health around uh, time changes, some financial data that there are changes in um, financial markets. Um, There are changes in crime statistics around daylight saving time. So, uh, I mean, these aren't just colloquial stories, but data that, you know, we can see and track and, you know, to offer it to suggest that this is why we have to get rid of daylight saving time. I'm not going to look at the the epidemiologic points or some of the other data that we can clearly see association, if not causality around daylight saving. But I suggest to you that people are designed to just get up at one time, go to bed at one time, find a natural rhythm, and that daylight saving time, moving the clock disrupts that. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but I will say that taking an hour out of somebody's life when they're only getting five or six hours is, is more impactful than grabbing an hour out of somebody's life when they're getting eight or nine hours a night. Absolutely. And one of the studies of the many that you've uh, mentioned, um, there have been some studies that look at safety uh, on the highway and uh, other instances where uh, that hour could uh, could cost uh, a life. Uh, and one of the studies I read said like maybe 28 extra lives a year. Um, so does that make it worth it? Well, yeah. I mean, anytime people are, are sleep uh, insufficient, uh, you know, they're, they're impaired. Um, you know, you can get to a point where you're so sleep deprived and from a psychomotor vigilance standpoint, like whether it's operational tasks, using motor coordination, hand-eye coordination, navigating, you know, there's an impairment there that equals like OWI at one point. Um, so when we look at the, the NTSB data around accidents, around the, the time change, I would just say that that's more representative of people driving at a time when they would normally be maybe sleeping or earlier in their day, as well as the fact that it's probably more representative of those were the people that weren't that prepared for this. Those are the people that probably get a radical degree of insufficient sleep. And that hour loss of sleep is almost magnified and and can result in inattention 
and issues around safety and, and safe motor vehicle operation. As a expert in sleep medicine, uh, one thing that you know uh, very well is that loss of sleep can impact the rest of an individual's health. Um, and uh, what are some of the ways uh, that, that that can happen, where uh, someone's health can be compromised by not getting up to, is it seven hours of sleep the average person needs? Well, the median you know, is eight, but we know that that defines that 50% of people need more and 50% of people need less. But as a society, it is rare. I mean, I could count on one hand the number of people that I meet in a six-month time frame that get more than eight hours a night's sleep. You know, hum human beings are circadian, uh, the Latin term for uh, circa dia or around the day. Um, we are designed to sleep and regenerate our central nervous system, leak growth hormone, repair our bodies, uh, try and mitigate the oxidative stress of living and burning calories. And I think that for most people, they look at the term circadian and they think of the brain and the desire to kind of sleep at night and be awake during the day. But the narrative is much deeper than that. Um, our, our brains are circadian, but multiple organs in our body are circadian too. Uh, specifically our heart, our liver, our stomach, our kidneys. There are multiple physiologic systems that are designed to be quiescent at night and active during the day. And when you tax them with either activity or at night, or more importantly, when they should be active during the day and people are sleeping like shift workers, we can see derangements in metabolic activity. We can see a proclivity for people to have poorly controlled diabetes. Uh, we can see people struggle with their body mass and struggle with obesity. Uh, we can see a higher point prevalence of heart disease. We can see a higher point prevalence of, of other issues that we can clearly look back and, and ascribe a causality to this circadian misalignment. And uh, with uh, um, obesity and uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, those uh, uh, over the years have seemed to go uh, almost uh, hand in hand. And uh, is that because an individual is uh, awake later and then if they're using some of the digital uh, toys and television and things like that to stay up later, they end up consuming more and that then results in some of these conditions? Is it just not, not being in bed? Right. Well, yeah. And, and also, I, I would say to you that there's some you know, hard science and, and something related to you know, hormonal imbalance, metabolic balance, P people that are sleep deprived or have insufficient sleep have a, a higher resistance um, to a neural hormone we call leptin. Um, you know, leptin made some news in the late 80s when they finally designed a, a mouse model where they knocked the gene expression out. And we had these obese little mice. And we really felt at that time that we'd made some real inroads into understanding mechanisms around obesity. Um, it turns out that, you know, we just got a little tiny, tiny aperture into the window instead of the big bay window that we thought it would be. But what we do know is that leptin is associated with um, kind of like a satiety meter, um, like leptin is your, I've eaten enough. And what we know is that, that people, are, people that are sleep insufficient have leptin insensitivity. Um, you know, just as diabetics have some degree of insulin insensitivity, people that are sleep insufficient uh, have leptin uh, insensitivity. 
And uh, not only that, but upregulation of another neurohormone called ghrelin uh, that acts on the stomach and actually induces hunger. Um, there are some other you know, point of note on that. Um, we can have upregulation of a, another part of our uh, gustatory system, which is a, uh, a receptor on our tongue called the umami receptor. Umami is a, a Japanese word for delicious. And I think they get to name it because they were the ones that discovered it. But what we also know is that uh, people that are sleep insufficient have a proclivity to choose kind of salty or sweet food. Um, so not only are we resistant to appetite, in other words, you know, the, the enough meter doesn't work right. Not only, uh, and that's that leptin insensitivity that I was talking to you earlier about, not only are we more hungry because of the ghrelin upregulation, okay, um, to top it all off, we have this proclivity to seek out uh, salty or sweet foods, foods that touch that umami receptor, and um, it kind of sets up a perfect storm of uh, people that are up late doing things, eating, not feeling full, uh, feeling more hungry, and then choosing kind of meta, you know, carbohydrate-dense foods that then only feed back and further compound the problem. Now, um, I, I've uh, you know, heard uh, that uh, with uh, lack of sleep, that uh, just not getting that sleep can also cause uh, issues with the, the heart itself. Uh, as far as uh, heart rhythms uh, or the ability to function at a, an efficient uh, level. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, I mean, the, the narrative around that is a little bit more subtle, but um, people can, can get into some, I, I would not say that it's singularly due to sleep deprivation, right? But we do know that there's some autonomic dysregulation where people that are up too long, um, their 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 basal metabolism is altered. But let me talk a little bit about um, insufficient sleep in the heart in the context of people that have troubles with sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. uh, sleep apnea is individuals that that don't ventilate appropriately at night. They they have a low oxygen level and a higher carbon dioxide level. Okay, and uh, an easy way to conceive con this is. Um, you know, human beings are just big batteries, right? Uh, back in the day when we had lead acid batteries, not lithium ion ones now, but lead acid batteries, you remember we needed like a specific pH for the battery to work right. We needed to get the right water levels in them. And that's kind of the way human beings are. We're, we're electrical organisms. Our, our heartbeats are electrical. Our brain signals are electrical. Our cellular processes rely on an action potential across membranes. We're just big walking batteries, okay? So at night, people that have issues with apnea or ventilating, they can raise up their carbon dioxide levels to a point where they get almost a transitory respiratory acidosis where they, they alter the pH of their own body and they can actually impact the electrical functioning just as in a regular battery. That's why you'll see people at night with sleep apnea have more issues around arrhythmias. You see all-cause mortality for cardiac events at night you see issues around atrial fibrillation and other arrhythmias, whether they're benign or malignant. I mean, issues around just PVCs, innocent arrhythmias or, or arrhythmias that could cause people trouble associated with sleep disordered breathing in general and obstructive sleep apnea in particular. And uh, also, uh, it doesn't just uh, 
stop there. Of course, your heart, that's the engine uh, that uh, the body needs. Uh, that causes an issue, but also lack of sleep uh, can affect uh, the brain uh, from a uh, behavioral standpoint uh, as well. What are some of the ways that uh, uh, lack of sleep can uh, impact uh, your uh, behavioral you know, Shakespeare wrote about it in Macbeth. There's this great quote, you know, uh, sleep is the bomb of a hurt mind. Um, I think everybody intrinsically understands that their resilience to stress, their overall mood, their mentation, their executive functioning, their ability to, to read, uh, you know, compute, think is certainly blunted or diminished in the context of periods of insufficient sleep. You know, sleep in and of itself is intimately related to uh, memory consolidation as well. Um, you know, we know that there's uh, a denser degree of REM sleep in, in patients that are in active learning environments. And when you deprive the brain of REM periods, memory consolidation is harder. It's harder to remember things. It's harder to learn things. It's harder to memorize things. We know that um, there's more emotional ability in people that are sleep insufficient, um, kind of like a maybe a disproportionate degree of, of either irritability or, or distress tolerance in general, whether it's being less patient with situations or, or, or being short or rude with people. Uh, I would suggest to you that it, it's clear to me that uh, beyond orientation to children where, you know, they're cranky, they just haven't had their nap yet and the child gets their nap and they've noticed changes in the emotional valence of the child. I think that that's a very clear well into adulthood where patients that are insufficient in sleep can manifest in behavioral changes, uh, impacts in mood and meditation, impacts in, in uh, depression, anxiety, um, self-help rating scales. Uh, you know, people generally rate their physical and mental health at a lower level when they're in periods of insufficient sleep. Um, how does a person get help? Uh, first, how do they know that they need help? And then how do they go about getting help? in improving their sleep uh, or dealing with a serious condition like sleep apnea? Sleep specialists treat um, not just sleep apnea. You know, we manage, we get referrals from dentists for people that have bad teeth grinding. We get referral from um, pain specialists where we have patients that have poorly controlled pain due to issues around um, uh, poor sleep. We manage people that are too tired during the day. We call that hypersomnia. We manage people with issues when they can't sleep or can't stay asleep, uh, you know, broadly known as insomnia. Um, we deal with uh, some people have issues around activities uh, when they sleep, sleep walking, sleep talking, sometimes acting out their dreams and hurting themselves. Uh, the pathways into a sleep clinic can be either through a primary care provider that, that a patient may present to and speak to about their current health condition. And the doctor there may say, hey, I think you need to see a sleep specialist. Or sometimes the patients themselves can get feedback from bed partners saying, hey, you're making a lot of noise when you sleep at night. You're not breathing and waking up. And the patients can refer themselves. Do you feel uh, that there's been uh, a uh, steady or uh, maybe uh, uh, more growth in options that are available for individuals as the field of uh, sleep medicine has continued to evolve? Because my understanding is sleep medicine's a relatively newer, newer science uh, right. compared to some of the others. Right. I think that things um, certainly improve and get better. I mean, just from a an observational standpoint, I've been doing sleep medicine for about 12 years now, full-time, dedicated for about uh, three years. 
And I've just seen great advances just in CPAP therapy, uh, machines getting smaller and smaller, more intelligent, more comfortable, the interface is better. I've seen great advances in dental sleep medicine, looking at how oral appliances are fitted, the comfort of them. Um, there've been uh, uh, very profound advances in surgical management. Uh, there's an intervention that we are uh, standing up here at Mercy One Clive called Inspire, which is a genioglossal nerve implantation where we stimulate the tongue at night into a certain posture when patients are sleeping so that it opens up their airway. Um, there's some exciting things going on, but what I think it all leads to is an ongoing awareness and uh, manifestation that sleep is critical. It impacts uh, individuals in multiple domains of their physical and mental health. Once they are kind of uh, consulted on uh, and, and kind of captured it in, in a medical care system with sleep medicine integrated into it, um, we like to work collaboratively with everyone involved in the patient's care around uh, identification of the problem an indexing of severity, and then an intervention based on outcome. This is one of the most important things you might do for yourself in life is get a good night's sleep. It's more than just a, a statement. Well, yeah. And, and I think over time, like a lot of things, um, you know, the, 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 the stressors and the buffeting of life informs our experience that most people, when they get over the 40-yard line, get above 40 years old, I think they start to understand how intimately related sleep is to their physical and psychological well-being. Um, there's less resilience to shift work or sleep deprivation. Um, eventually, men, as they age and they get above the uh, 50 years old, um, there's certain screening uh, that happens in their life. And, and men that are identified as having issues with blood pressure or atrial fibrillation, um, troubles with prediabetes or obesity. Um, sometimes the primary care physicians are kind of baking in to the evaluation and the workup a referral uh, to sleep medicine. So if you were to say to me, you know, what's the one piece of advice I could give somebody? I think it's really dependent upon the individual, where, where they are, how old they are, what their current active medical problems are. Um, but it, it doesn't take uh, a sleep medicine physician to see or ascribe the causality between poor sleep and and active medical problems for people or, or just emotional and physical health that they can say, I understand in my own self that when I'm not sleeping well, I just don't feel well. I rate my physical health as lower and I rate my mental health as lower. Well, that's good advice, Dr. Grant. And uh, we've covered a lot of uh, territory uh, in this short time together, but uh, hopefully we've encouraged people uh, to pay attention to their sleep and uh, that it's uh, not just uh, something that uh, has to happen, but it's another way that they can care for themselves along with their uh, health experts to uh, live their best life. Thank you very, very much. We uh, have enjoyed it, and uh, let's hope we can all find some more restful nights ahead. Yeah, Greg, good to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let us know what you thought of this podcast in an email to podcast at mercyhealth.com or find us at mercyone.org slash podcast. There's a form you can fill out to send us your feedback and also find all of our episodes. Until next time, live your best life.